0: Have you all seen the movie Groundhog Day? Is that a familiar movie? Okay, okay, some of you all have seen it. So if you're unfamiliar with Groundhog Day, it's Bill Murray, it's 1993. It's a wonderful movie, you need to go see it. Um, so the premise of this movie is this guy named Phil Connors played by Bill Murray, and he is a anchorman, or he's a, he's a weatherman in um, the Pittsburgh area, and he covers Groundhog Day in Paxitani, pittsburgh or Pennsylvania, pennsylvania um and so he goes to patsatone to see the the groundhog on february 2nd and as the movie starts off you discover that this guy is a total jerk like he is incredibly self-centered he's a he's a total jerk he doesn't care about anyone but himself um and you find that, that that he finds himself in a time loop he wakes up the next day This is a total spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, but it's from 1993, so I guess it's okay. Um, He wakes up the next day, and it's February 2nd again. And he lives through the day again. And he does this over and over and over and over again, and he's stuck in in Groundhog Day, over and over and over again. And... um, and at the end, towards the end of the movie, oh, and the other thing, important thing is that he's the only one that, he, that knows that he's in this time loop. Like everyone else goes through the day if this is the first time happening it. And he's the only one who knows that it's happened again. And so the last, day, last time he goes through the day, he uses his knowledge of the town that he's learned from walking through the day hundreds, thousands of times um, to do as much good as possible for people. He saves a homeless man's life Um, he uh, fixes an old lady's tire Uh, he makes friends with everyone he goes from being a total jerk to being someone who humbly loves and serves this town um, in a really beautiful selfless way and this movie like all great movies um, puts this question in front of us Um, what is the relationship between knowledge and responsibility what is the relationship between knowledge and responsibility knowing what I know what must I do Or knowing what you know, what must you do? Um, In our passage tonight, Jesus is going to show us that the link the link between knowledge and responsibility is compassion. Compassion is the link between knowledge and responsibility. So we're going to read from Luke chapter 10, uh, uh, verses 25 through 37. This is in the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along there. Um, This is God's word for us tonight. It's completely true, and he gives it to us in love. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to them, "said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Um, So uh, I'm really thankful for a man named Steve Garber, uh, who wrote a book called Visions of Vocation. And a lot of the way that he thought about this parable has helped me make sense of it. Um, So as we look at this tonight, we're going to first by just looking at these three characters. We've got a man on a journey. We have the ones who passed him by. And then we have the merciful Samaritan. So it begins with this man on a journey going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this path was well known, this road was well known to be very dangerous and very steep. It was called in the day, the Bloody Way. And it's like there's this 4,000 foot drop from Jerusalem to Jericho. So it's downhill about 17 miles. And it's a steep road that's narrow and it descends steeply between um, cliffs and caves and then thieves would hide in the caves and when you walk by they would jump out and they'd steal your stuff and then they'd run away so traveling to jericho in the first century would be much like today um having to make a journey where you had to pass through like an unlit um inner city late at night um by yourself without your cell phone foreign place um unsure of who's around uh complete darkness it was a scary it was a scary place um so in this dark alley, this guy gets robbed, he gets beat up, and he gets left for dead. And so by chance, uh, a Jewish priest walks by. And as the audience would have heard this, or as we're supposed to hear this, as the audience would have heard this the first time, they would have been thinking, oh, here's the hero. Because a Jewish priest was um, someone who was a leader in the community, he was respected, um, it'd be like a head pastor who's really re- well-respected in a town, and um, they're like, oh, he's going to be the hero of the story, um, but what does the priest do, right? He sees the man, he actually crosses over to the other side of the street and he walks as if he didn't see him. And so we thinking like, oh, he must've had a really good excuse. We'll let him go. So then a Levite comes and a Levite, um, right? He's not quite as holy as a priest. Maybe he's like an assistant pastor. I don't know. But this, this guy, he must be the hero of the story. Like this guy's the hero. But what does the Levite do? Well, he sees the man and he passes by on the other side of the road. So the listeners to the story must have been thinking, like, why isn't he helping this guy? Like, maybe because uh, they thought they were afraid it was a trap, right? They don't want to get themselves robbed. So maybe like, you'd avoid the guy, but you'd call the police. Like, you're afraid this might be a trap. Or maybe uh, there's a religious reason. In the Old Testament, there are these um, ceremonial laws that say that anyone who touches a dead body is made ceremonially unclean, which means that they can't enter into the temple to worship for a week, and the, the priest and the Levite, their work is in the temple. And so it would mean like well that would impede them from doing their job, so maybe they thought it was a dead body so they, they stayed away. Um, and... This story, um, well, Jesus in this story doesn't tell us why they walked by the man. He just tells us that they did pass by. They saw him, they crossed the other side of the street, and um, they walked on by. This would have confounded the lawyer. Um, The lawyer who Jesus was talking to, it would have confounded him because priests and Levites were members of the community whose job description, part of their job description was they had the responsibility to have mercy on strangers in need and to give financial support to the poor. So the two people whose job it was to care for this man, to see him, um, they didn't see him, and they pretended like they didn't. So what's what's going on in this? Uh, There's a 20th century author, southern author, named Walker Percy, who in one of his books, he says this. He says, you can get all A's and still flunk life. You can get all A's and still flunk life. These guys got all A's. I mean, these are the leaders in their community. They've polished their resumes. They've gotten really good jobs. They're experts in the law. They've gotten all A's and they've still flunked life. And when it mattered to the guy in the ditch, they crossed the street and they kept walking. And this reveals an interesting relationship, an important relationship between knowledge and responsibility. The priest and Levite, they have the knowledge, right? They know the commandment, they know what's required of them. But that is uh, somehow separate from their human responsibility. And so it raises the question for us, what will they do knowing what they know? What are they going to do knowing what they know? In 1961, a woman named Hannah Arendt, who was a German Jew, who was a student of the Holocaust, she published a book about Adolf Eichmann. Um, If you're unfamiliar with Adolf Eichmann, he was the, the Nazi official whose primary responsibility was, was primarily responsible to, responsible to Hitler to answer the Jewish question. So he was the person who was, on, was in Hitler's cabinet who was responsible for the extermination of the Jews. And as Hannah Arendt, who was a German Jew studying the Holocaust, as she studied his life, um, do you know what she found most striking, most intriguing about Eichmann? It was the ordinariness of his life. Like he didn't get up in the morning announcing that he was going to inflict terror on people's lives. He, that he was going to do unspeakable horror and unspeakable evil. Rather, he said that he was simply obeying orders. He was simply doing his job. How could a man who was responsible for so many thousands of murders be simply obeying orders, be simply doing his job? Well, in Aaron's book, she returns again and again to this question. She says, why doesn't Eichmann see the Jews as his neighbors? Her conclusion After studying his life, her conclusion was one word. was thoughtlessness. This is what she writes. She says, he merely never realized what he was doing. It was sheer thoughtlessness. Not stupidity. He wasn't stupid. He was thoughtless. It was his thoughtlessness that predisposed him to become one of the greatest criminals of World War II. And at his his trial, Eichmann protested his charges. He actually protested the charges against him. He said this. He said, "Um, with the killing of the Jews, I had nothing to do. I never killed a Jew or a non-Jew for that matter. I never killed any human being. I never gave an order to kill a Jew or a non-Jew. I just didn't do it. And Arendt responded to him this way. She says this. She says, the fact is that Eichmann did not see much. He never actually attended a mass execution. He never actually watched the gassing process he saw just enough to be fully informed of how the destruction machinery worked, that there were different methods, two different methods of killing, um, that the shooting was done by the death squads, the gassing the camps. Yet he did see enough to be fully informed, and therefore he was responsible. He saw enough to be fully informed, he was responsible, yet he did nothing to stop the Holocaust. So how is this possible? How is this possible for a human, a human being It happens when we separate knowledge from responsibility. The priest and the Levite, they saw enough to be fully informed. And therefore, they were responsible to the man in the ditch. And yet they did nothing to help the man who fell among the robbers. Like Walker Percy said, you can get all A's and you can still flunk life. So then into the story, we have the merciful Samaritan. The Samaritan arrives... And the Samaritan man, if you're unfamiliar with Jewish Samaritan relations, um, he would have been a sworn enemy of the Jewish man who was lying in his own blood. He faced the same danger that the priest and Levi did, and everything that in his experience should have led him to step on the man rather than over him. Um, I think a helpful framework for us to understand Samaritan-Jew relationships would would be um, race relations in our own country during the lynching era. Like... He, a Samaritan would have been similar to um, like an African-American man during the lynching era in American South. I mean, that is how tense and how horrible the relations are between these two ethnic groups. Um, there's a moment in Jesus's life in, in John chapter 8 when the Jews are super angry at Jesus and they call him the worst possible insult they can think of. They call him a Samaritan. I mean, this is like a, a racial slur that was used against him. Now, and despite all this, the Samaritan Samaritan is the one who had compassion. And at the end of the story, he's declared the one who had mercy. He is the hero of the story. So this word compassion here is in verse 33. i want to look down. This word compassion um, is this word that means to take pity. And it's this Greek word I really love. I'm going to say it. It's splagizomai. And it's, it's a fun word to say, and it's this feeling in our guts. Splagitsomai, like the splagnon, is Greek for like the guts, the bowels, the heart. And so, splagitsomai is the verb form of your guts or your bowels or your heart, like to feel something for someone else. Um, these these uh, quotes are on your bulletin. I'm going to read these definitions of compassion. The first one's from a guy named B.B. Warfield. And he says this, he says, compassion means not indifference to our times and our neighbors, it means absorption in time and absorption in our neighbors. It means forgetfulness of self and others. It means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives. Bind ourselves to a thousand souls by the filaments of so loving a sympathy that their lives become ours. And from William Blake's poem, On Another Sorrow, Can I see another's woe and not be in sorrow too? Can I see another's grief and not seek for kind relief? Um, Who here has seen Up? you all familiar with the Pixar movie Up, right? Do you guys remember the first time you saw the opening sequence, the love sequence between Carl? Right? Right? You feel it. Ellie and Carl. Like it's this beautiful romance that adds in this really sad death. Like the sad death of Ellie and then you see the loneliness of Carl. And like you're sad in that moment. I remember when, when Mary Clark and I saw it for the first time. Like you, you want to like care for him even though he's a cartoon old man. Like you feel, that's compassion. That's what I to This desire that you feel to want to care for someone outside of yourself. The feeling in your gut that you want to live through someone else's pain with them. Compassion is the feeling in your gut that you want to live through someone else's pain with them. And this is how Jesus related to people in need. We see this word compassion is often used to describe Jesus and how he related to people. In Matthew 9, Jesus sees this crowd of people and he has compassion on them. And it says that he sees them, that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd and we're told he had compassion. And then in Matthew 14, it's the story of Jesus feeding, miraculously feeding 5,000 people. And we're told why it's that he had compassion on them. He saw a great cl- crowd and he had compassion on them. Um, There's stories of him healing blind people and restoring lepers and driving demons out of a child and raising the son of a widow from a dead. And all of these were told he was moved by compassion. He saw their need. He had compassion and he did the necessary thing. Compassion is the link between knowledge and responsibility. The link between seeing the need and doing the necessary thing. We see this in verse 33, the end of 33. Look at this with me. He says, the Samaritan, um, when he saw him, he had compassion and he went to him and bound up his wounds. Saw him, had compassion and went to him. Compassion is the link between knowledge and responsibility. And compassion has a cost. We see this following that when he, when he goes to him, he, he binds up his wounds. He puts them on his animal. He brings them to an end. He takes care of him. He pays for his, um, his hotel bill and he tells the innkeeper, if there's any other expense, I'll take care of it. So there's a social cost, right? The social cost of the Samaritan man helping a Jewish man. Um, He was affirming the dignity of his enemy. There's a schedule cost, right? He was on the road too. He was going somewhere. He was interrupted wherever he was going, whatever he had to do. He interrupted that to care for this man and a financial cost Two denarii is about two days pay. And on top of that, he agreed to pay any additional cost. So compassion has a cost and compassion also has a call. Um, the story is in the context of Jesus having this conversation with the lawyer. And the lawyer asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds by giving him the law of God. That you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength, and your mind. And must love your neighbors yourself. He's summarizing the Old Testament law, which required of God's people. And then um, he says, uh, that's how the, the lawyer summarizes it. And Jesus says, you've got it. That's how to do it. And then we're told the lawyer wants to justify himself. He wants to prove himself to Jesus. And he asks Jesus, so who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers with this parable. And what he's teaching him and teaching us is that um, loving your neighbor can't be faked. Loving your neighbor can't be faked. So what does this look like? Like, What does this look like for us? What does this look like for you at Wake Forest? Um, It's worth saying that Wake Forest is a place that you can get all A's and still flunk life. Um, you can spend four years here polishing your resume to get that job with the extra zero and the clear path to promotions to make it to the top and to realize that you've flunked life. Um, I uh, I was talking to a friend today who's a camp- campus minister at Stanford University and he said that as he's, he's recently moved to Silicon Valley and he's gotten to know some Christians who are high up in like Google and um, Apple and Google X, which is their moonshot company where they're doing all this Future stuff, And he says he's getting to know these men who are in their 40s and they've got the dream job, right? Um, they are, are discontent. Um, they, they did it. They achieved it. And they are like mourning that they work too much and they don't have a work-life balance. And um, my friend was saying that he had to repress a laugh because they were saying, oh, like, what if we just like moved to the mountains and opened a food truck? Like they were so, um, they'd done it. They got all A's. Um, they're at the top, and their experience there is like, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Um, it's, it's not worth it. Um, so, you see this, you can get a lazy and still flunk life in your achievement, like with your academics or wherever you're head with your resume. And you can also do it in your relationships, right? You can see your neighbor and have knowledge of their suffering and never do anything about it. So, the question for us, for me and for you from Jesus in this text. Is knowing what you know, knowing what we know, what are we going to do? Who are the people amongst us here at Wake, here in Winston-Salem, who are in need of a neighbor? I want you to imagine this with me. Think think about this with me. Um, Who are those who get trampled on or get avoided by those with social power? Who are those people? Who's on the outside? Who... Um, not just big picture, but even in your life as you live it here, who is hard to love? Who do people like you not associate with? Who is off limits to your compassion? Who do you ignore expecting someone else to care for them? Who doesn't have a voice? I mean, this could be an individual. It could be a group of people. It could be a certain type of person. question for you, the question for me to wrestle with is who is it and why do we avoid loving them? And what is the limit to your compassion? I think more often than we'd like to admit, um, we avoid loving our neighbor. Like we avoid even seeing our neighbor. Instead, we we opt for the alternative. Right? We are so deeply distracted. Like we are siloed off in our own echo chambers. Right? We can't see our neighbor if we're we're walking with our head down, looking at our phones. Right? We can't hear our neighbor if we've got our headphones in, walking to class. Um, why do we do this? Why would Why would you put in earphones even if you're not listening to anything? Like I remember doing this in college. Like, why would you do this? Um, Because staying distracted keeps you from feeling like you're obligated. If you're so focused, if you're so focused on your work, you excuse yourself. Like, if I'm so thoughtful in my in my work, I excuse myself to be thoughtless about the needs of the people around me. Living distracted frees us up to be thoughtless. This is something for us to think about. Living distracted frees us up to be thoughtless. Um, And the scary thing about that is that means that that we are far closer to Eichmann, to Adolf Eichmann, than we care to ever think or imagine. Thoughtless about our decisions, thoughtless about how they affect our neighbors, our neighbors who bear the image of God. And even if we do see our neighbor, we still so often avoid compassion. Why do we do this? It's because because the world is so painful, it's so broken. like, I, I have a, maybe you think, like, I've walked through enough mess relationally. I don't want to do that again. I want to keep that at arm's distance. I don't want that to affect me. I'm going to choose not to love, to keep my head down, to get out of these four years, and to choose not to love. Um, compassion has a cost, right? We see that from the Samaritan that it has a social and a schedule and a financial cost. And if you choose to be responsible for your neighbor, it's going to hurt, and it's going to be messy. You're going to be late to stuff. It's going to cost you money. But you know that. You know that there's always a compa- cost. There's actually a cost on both sides of it. The cost of compassion, as C.S. Lewis puts it, is to be vulnerable. C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one. Wrap your heart Carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Always avoid entanglements. Lock your heart up safe in that casket or coffin of your selfishness. But know that in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. So there is a cost to loving, to compassion, but there is also a cost to not loving. And that cost is living in the coffin of your own selfishness. And in that safe, dark, airless place, your heart will shrivel up into thoughtfulness or thoughtlessness. Your heart will shrivel up into thoughtlessness. So the question for you is, which cost do you want to bear? The cost of compassion or the cost of withholding compassion? Um, And in this passage, Jesus shows us the way of compassion. So how do you get real compassion? How do you get the kind of compassion that links knowledge to responsibility? Well, the brilliance of Jesus' teaching here is that he puts the lawyer into the story, right? The lawyer says, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus tells him a story, and he says, imagine that you were on your way to Jericho. Imagine you were on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and you got jumped and mugged, stripped, beat, left for dead. And friends, this is our condition apart from Jesus. Um, We are naked. Our sin, our disobedience to God's law, um, our loving other things than him— Uh, leaves us ashamed and leaves us without covering before God. Um, And if you don't feel naked, if that feels like, nah, I don't really feel naked. uh, um, What if what you did in the dark was brought into the light? What if the secret thing that no one knows about was brought into the light? Friends, apart from Jesus, you are naked. And you are beat up, right? We are bruised and hurt by ourselves and by others. we have sinned against our neighbors, against our family and friends, and our classmates. And those same people have sinned against us. We are wounded and we are brokenhearted. Um, and Scripture tells us that you have been left for dead. In that Ephesians two says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. That we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And, and the body. And the Bible calls this a death. And what this paints for us, us beat up and naked and left for dead, is that we are in need of rescue. We are in need of someone to come and rescue us, um, to come where we are to see you, to not cross over to the other side of the road, to not expect you to get up and take care of yourself, to see you and to have compassion to go to you, one who will go to you and will bind up your wounds, someone who will carry you to a place where you can rest and be fed, someone who will pay your debts for you, the debts that you owe. And friends, that one is Jesus himself. Jesus heals up the the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. And he says to me, come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Um, He pays the debt that we owe because of our sin. He canceled the debt that was that stood against us. He set this aside. He nailed it to the cross because in Jesus we see all beautiful things most clearly. And it's there that we see the compassion of God. And when you see yourself as the man in the ditch of your own sin and misery, in need of compassionate mercy of God, then you will have the power by the Holy Spirit to show mercy to others. It's when you see yourself first as recipient of compassion of Jesus, then you will have the power to bear with that roommate who you just can't stand, um, to care for that classmate who is always asking for help and never doing their homework. Uh, to walk with that person who is clearly lonely and um, has burned every bridge in their life. It's only as you've received the compassion of Jesus that you will be empowered to share that with others. Because um, the only true engine for real mercy is the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Because in Christ, God doesn't look past your filth. He doesn't look past your sin, your shame, or your guilt. He looks right at you. Unwavering look right at you. And do you know what the look in his eye is when he looks at you? It's love. He looks at you with love. His knowledge of you and your sin doesn't repel him. He doesn't see your mess and say, you're just too messy. But his love for us moves him into real compassion. He doesn't just sit there feeling compassion for you, but he acts on it. And the pattern of God's response to sin is the same as the pattern of the good Samaritan's response to the man in the ditch. Right? Jesus sees us, he sees you, he feels compassion towards you, and he moves towards you in space and time. Philippians 2 says that Jesus, who was the very nature of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant and he became a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Friends, Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve so that by his spirit, he can heal you and he can forgive you. And in his resurrection, he can restore you to his father in heaven. This is the mercy of God and Christ. This is the the perfect picture of knowledge and responsibility together. It is most visible in the compassion of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection for you. So I'm wrapping up here. but just to ask the question, what does it look like when a people's knowledge and responsibility are linked together in the compassion of God? What does it look like when a group of Christians in a particular place, at a particular time, try answering this question, and who is my neighbor? What could this look like? Um, I want to tell you the story about a French town called Les Chambon. Um, this was a town that during World War II um, uh, did the most amazing thing, and yet it was the most simple, simple thing. It's their, their, their story of this town is recorded in this documentary called Weapons of the Spirit. And someone, in, in reviewing the documentary, read this. He said that the, the documentary is like a watching a murder mystery in reverse, examining crimes that didn't take place, atrocities that were averted. So this little French village, with the encroaching armies of Nazi Germany and the Vichy regime in France, um, Jews were fleeing and they were looking for refuge. And under the leadership of the pastor in the town, the citizens of Les Chambon risked their lives to hide Jews. Um, these Jews were who are being rounded up by the Nazis. And so they hid Jews in their homes. They hid them on farms. And whenever the Nazi patrol came searching, um, they would take them up into the, the forest and the mountains and hide them there. And after the war, one of the villagers was, was recalling this. And he said this. He said, as soon as the soldiers left, we would go into the forest and we would sing a song. And whenever they heard that song, the Jews knew it was safe to come home. Then the situation took a more tense turn when the Germans invaded the South Zone in 1942. But the people of this little town continued to protect the Jews in open defiance of the authorities. In addition to providing shelter, they obtained forged identification and ration cards for the Jews to use. They helped them cross the border into neutral Switzerland. Um, Some of the residents of this town were arrested by the Gestapo, and were murdered in German concentration camps. But it's estimated that the people of Le Chambon together saved between 3,000 5,000 Jews from certain death. And when asked, this is amazing, when asked why they hid the Jews at the risk of their own lives, they gave these simple answers. Like, well, it all happened very simply. We didn't ask ourselves why to do this. It was the human thing to do. It's the compassionate thing to do. It happened so, uh, so naturally. We don't understand the fuss. It happened simply. We helped because they needed help. And I just want to leave two images in your mind. I want to leave um, Adolf Eichmann, who uh, the thoughtless man. And in his thoughtlessness, um, what, what resulted uh, in the lives of his neighbors and the people of Le Chambon. Um, what is the difference between these two? It's compassion. It's this compassion that's fueled by the mercy of God. And which of these two do you think proved to be a neighbor? Friends, oh, that we would go and do likewise. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, we, we thank you for the way that you told stories, um, that uh, when we dive beneath the surface, we see that you are answering, asking, answering these deep questions about what it means to be human. Um, Lord, we thank you that the way that your kingdom moves forward is in compassion. Lord, um, Lord, we pray that you would help us as our UF to be a community uh, that loves our neighbors, that um, our neighbors here at Wake Forest would receive your compassion through us, um, that we would bear with people because we know that you bear with us. Lord, help us that you might receive glory in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.